When God closes a door, he opens a window. You're never more safe than when you are in the center of God's will. God will never give you more than you can handle. God helps those who help themselves. Let go and let God. I have to admit, I was half worried that I'd get some amens as I was going through those, (laughs) which would really destroy the point of bringing up these slogans in my introduction. These things are not true. These are... These are, these are, because they're not true, they are cruel cliches. They're actually suicidal slogans. When God closes a door, He closes a door. You're never more safe than when you are in the center of God's will. I like what C.S. Lewis wrote in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where he said, God is good, but He's not safe. God will not give you more than He can handle, but He will and often does give you more than you can handle, which forces us to trust Him, to lean on Him, God helps those who cannot help themselves. This is at the heart of the gospel. Not that God is responding to us, but that we are responding to Him. Not that we are taking initiative and then God is helping us, but that we cannot help ourselves. That we are helpless. That we are sinful. That we are desperate. And yet, He helps us. Let go and let God, rather, trust God and take hold of the life that He has given you. Yes, God is sovereign over all things. And yes, you are totally responsible for what you do every minute of every day. These slogans are... Not good for Christians. We, we tend to grab onto them and they're easily remembered and they actually and often influence our behavior. The way we think and therefore the way that we live. Well, this is nothing new. The Corinthians had their own slogans. The Corinthians had their own slogans, their own cliches, which they then used to justify sinful behavior. They were not biblical. We'll read two of them today. First, all things are lawful. And the second, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. These were popular sayings even in the Corinthian church. And these slogans, we'll see, were actually driving sexual immorality in the church. So Paul rightly corrects them in our text today by 
giving them and giving us a biblical theology of the Christian's body. So as we move forward, remember what God told His people Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And that is that we do not live by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And those words that come from the mouth of God by which we live come to us by the Holy Spirit and through God's holy word. And so as I preach, as we read and think and listen, we pray that God would use these words to help us live to live by them today. So with that massive task in front of us, we should pray together. Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, give us life through the preaching of your holy word this morning. Reach our hearts and reach our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you are using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 897. Another problem in Corinth. The problem that Paul addresses in our text today was sexual immorality. And it was sexual immorality among Christians. It was sexual immorality within the church. He's already brought up one instance of it in chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, but apparently that was not an isolated instance, and so Paul will tell them, look at verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. And in verse 18, he will tell them, flee from sexual immorality. That's the problem he's addressing. Sexual immorality refers to sexual activity that is immoral according to God's standards. It refers to any sexual activity that is not between one man and one woman within a marriage. Everything outside of that, according to God's standard, is sexual immorality. How bad the sexual immorality was within this church in Corinth, we learn in verse 16 that some of the Corinthian Christians were openly soliciting prostitutes. Openly. To where Paul, miles and miles and miles and miles away in Ephesus, it's just public knowledge that he's getting word. And so he writes to correct them. Now Corinth, the city in which this church was, was a city known for its sexual immorality. In fact, if you were in Corinth from just about anywhere, you could look up and you could see on top of a hill this massive temple it was the temple of Aphrodite. It was devoted to the worship of the Greek goddess Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love. And employed in that temple were some 1,000 prostitutes 
who would make themselves available both in that temple and down throughout the town. So apparently, rather than the church getting in the city, the city had gotten in the church. Rather than the church influencing the city in Corinth, what was happening is the city, what they did, and what they believed, and their moral standards, that got into the church. So that's the problem. The problem that Paul is addressing is sexual immorality in the church. But there was actually something worse than the Corinthians' immorality, and that was that they openly justified it. They openly justified it. They weren't just doing what they felt like doing. That's wrong. But they weren't just doing what they felt like doing. They actually had philosophical and theological justifications that were beneath their behavior. And this is what Christians do. If Christians are going to do something that they should not do, or they're going to do something openly that they should not do, they will be tempted to build justifications for it, to misinterpret Scripture, to misunderstand Scripture, to malign Scripture, to quote unbiblical slogans or cliches. That's what was happening in Corinth. And so in our text here, Paul repeats back and then refutes Two of them. So as I said in my introduction, there are two justifications stated in the form of slogans. And the first was, look with me, all things are lawful. And the second was, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. So the first one, in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. As a Christian, I'm under grace. I'm not under the law anymore. That's what Romans 6, 14 through 15 says. Paul hadn't written Romans yet, but I'm sure he had taught this. Or Galatians 5, 18 says, if you are led by the Spirit, and if you're a Christian, you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So I'm not under rules anymore. I'm not under law anymore. I am under grace. I am not saved by works of the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law, they might have said. Therefore, all things are lawful for me. I'm not saved by what I do. I'm saved by what Jesus did. And so for you to critique or be critical of what I do is to diminish the gospel and is to diminish grace. Because I'm saved, not by what I do, it doesn't at the end of the day matter what I do as a Christian. Some of you have heard this argumentation. Some of you have used it. It's not true. Paul snaps back. Listen to verse 12. All things are lawful for me. That's what the Corinthians said. And now here is what Paul said, but not all things are helpful. In other words, for a Christian, there may be some practices, not what the Corinthians were doing, but there may be some practices that are not technically or necessarily unlawful for you as a Christian, but are they helpful? 
Are they good for you? There's more things to consider other than is there a verse prohibiting it? All things are not lawful for me. He repeats the slogan. And this time he responds with, but I will not be dominated by anything. Because we are not justified by the law and our obedience to it, there may be behavior that is not necessarily unlawful, but if it is not helpful, it is not good. If it is easily to dominate us or master us as Christians, then we should reconsider the behavior. Would you agree this behavior is not helpful? Would you agree that this behavior has enslaved you? Then maybe the fact that it is not technically unlawful doesn't really matter in this case. If it's not good for you as a believer, if it's not helping you as a believer, if you find that it dominates you and enslaves you and has mastery over you, and as a Christian you don't want to be mastered by anything other than Jesus, so he wants them to think about these slogans they have. So that's one cliche. The other one's worse. It's the one that they use to actually justify sexual immorality. It's more devastating, which is why Paul uses the rest of this text to address this slogan. It's found in verse 13. So here it is. Verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, I believe that that entire statement was the belief. There's a bit of argument over that. But I think it's clear that this entire statement, we'll see, was used by the Corinthians to justify sexually immoral behavior. Let me read it again. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. So it works like this. Here's what the slogan means. These bodies of ours, they've got appetites. God made these bodies of ours and they have appetites. Appetites for food, appetite for money, appetite for pleasure. Why not indulge them? After all, what else are these bodies for? God wouldn't give us these appetites if it didn't mean for us to indulge them. So what is the big deal? It is this utilitarian argument. Our bodies are tools, and that's what they are to be used for. These appetites awaken us to what our bodies are for. Why not indulge them? And then, a deeper theological belief is here that the body will ultimately be destroyed by God. So, so what? That's the argument. It's what our bodies are for, obviously, And in the end, God is going to destroy these bodies. So why does it really matter what we do with them? Now remember, Paul is writing to Christians. So let me ask you a question. Is that true? Will these 
bodies of ours be destroyed. The Corinthians believed so. That's what they said. They were parroting Greek thinking of the day, which was heavily influenced by Gnosticism. And one of the foundational beliefs of Gnostic philosophy is that the immaterial mattered and the material didn't matter. So what's really important is the spiritual and the physical is not important. In fact, they would say and believe that these bodies that we have are prisons and our souls are trapped in these body prisons and our souls are the most, listen, our souls are the most important thing a person is. That is not biblical. I think some of you were just surprised. I think some of you might be surprised as we go on and listen to Paul and understand what he has to say about a Christian's body. So the Gnostic belief was the body doesn't, it's the soul that matters. The body doesn't matter or it's not as important. And historically, when Christians have believed that, it's usually taken them in one of two different directions. So let me quote to you from David Strain. He says, A little paradoxically, that belief led into two different directions depending on the school of thought to which you belong. Some sought freedom from the prison of the body through asceticism. That is to say, they denied the body and even afflicted the body in the hopes that the harsher the treatment of the body, the freer the soul would be. That's one direction if the body doesn't matter. But the other direction if the body doesn't matter. But others, and this was the Corinthians' particular problem, others said, well, if the body doesn't matter, what really matters is the interior spiritual life. If the body doesn't matter, well, then our physical appetites could not be less important. What matters is the inner spiritual life, and so the appetites and the needs of the flesh are indifferent and irrelevant, so who cares? Indulge by all means. When you're hungry, eat. When your sexual appetites are awakened, indulge. It just doesn't matter. Now, philosophically, that makes a lot of sense. Not theologically, but philosophically it does. And that kind of thinking we know was rampant in Corinth. It led to sexual immorality. It led to other problems that we'll see as we continue to study this letter. But this is not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. We are not souls locked up behind the bars of our bodies. I know some of you feel that way. But facts don't care about your feelings. We are not bodies without souls. We are embodied souls. That's what we are as people. We are both. We are body and soul. We are embodied souls. Both. We will see just in Paul's teaching here, without even going elsewhere in the Bible. And so both the body and soul are very important. 
very important to God, whether or not they're important to you, whether or not they were important to the Christians in Corinth, the body as well as the soul is very important to God. So let's move on to Paul's correction. Again, the problem with sexual immorality and their justification was this sort of Gnostic indifference to the human body. So here's Paul's correction. We find it in the second half of verse 13. Let me read the entire verse so we get it together. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. That's what they said. And now here's what Paul says. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. There is the correction. And then Paul has his own slogan. But for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Do you see that? Paul answered with his own biblical slogan. It goes like this. You say food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. But I say the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. He's countering them with truth. They were using their saying about the body, talking about um, a food appetite, and using that as the basis for indulging their sexual appetites. They were saying, and Paul sees right through that, they were saying, well, the body is for sex and sex is for the body. And so Paul counters by saying, no, the body is, is for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. And so the correction is your body is not for sexual immorality. Your body is for the Lord. That's what he's told us so far. Christian, your body is important to God. We know that so far. And your body is for the Lord. We need to keep reading to understand what Paul means by this. So in the following verses, Paul is going to argue for what he has just said here in verses 14 through 18. What does he really mean by this? He's going to tell us. He has corrected the Corinthians by saying, actually, it does matter. Actually, it does matter what you do with your body. What you do with your body is very important because your body is for God. So it, it does matter, and now he's going to explain what he, he means by that. And he's going to do that by stating three truths about the Christian body. Yes, Christians have different bodies. So three truths here, or three realities about the Christian body. Let me give them to you up front, and then we'll work through each of them. This again is to Christians. And Christians only, number one, your body will be resurrected. Number two, your body is a member of Christ. And number three, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If we get those truths, we have a basic biblical theology of the Bible. Not comprehensive. But if we get those three truths, these are enormously helpful for us. If we get those, we have a basic theology of the body. 
And this is, I think, as I was thinking about it, a great case for why theology matters. I mean, the Bible obviously is, is all over the place proving why theology really matters and is important. But Paul knows the Corinthians. And Paul knows us because we're like the Corinthians. He knows that they won't change course unless they know something. They need to understand something. And Paul knows that if he's going to change their behavior, he has to change their beliefs. He has to change the way they're thinking about all of this. Right thinking leads to right living. Wrong thinking leads to wrong living. Change their mind Paul knows, and change their manner of life. This is why theology, one of the reasons, it's so important. The Puritan William Perkins said, theology is the science of living blessedly forever. Theology is the science or the study of living blessedly forever. In other words, doctrine is for life. Knowing God is for living. Good theology promotes and enables a holy and happy life. On the contrary, bad theology promotes and enables a painful and unhappy life. So let's learn in these verses how we ought to view our bodies as Christians. This was very eye-opening for me this week. Let's learn how we should view our bodies as Christians and let's hold this up and over and against worldly views because it's very different. So number one, your body will be resurrected. Verse 14. And God raised the Lord. That refers to the resurrection of Jesus. God raised his body, right, out of the tomb. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, do you remember what the Corinthians said about the body? Back in verse 13, they believed the body would be destroyed. This is far from destroyed. This is like the opposite of destroyed, isn't it? He says your bodies will be raised. Philippians 3, 20 through 21, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. I mean, listen to these verses and think about these verses. Because here's the thing. You are not getting a new body. You are getting a renewed body. And that's totally different. That body that you have right now, that thing is permanent. It is permanent. It's going to be, what does Philippians 3 say? Transformed in heaven, changed in heaven, renewed in heaven, but it will be the body that you have right now. 
Jesus walked out of the tomb with the same body, his glorified body. It wasn't a new body. The disciples recognized him. The same is going to be true for us. 1 John 3, 2 says, What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Here's question 57 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It asks, how does the resurrection of the body comfort you? Here's the answer. Not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head. That's true if you're a Christian. When you die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's why Paul wanted to depart and go to be with the Lord. That's why Jesus said to the, the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Not his body, obviously, but the soul and the spirit. You're an embodied soul. When you die, your soul, Christian, goes right to be with Jesus. It's instantaneous. But also, the second part of the question, my very flesh or body, my very body, not another body, not a different body, my very flesh will be raised by the power of Christ, reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. So it will be a glorious version of my very flesh. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, 42, our resurrected bodies will be raised in power and raised in glory and will be imperishable. And so Paul writes in Romans 8, 11, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Like that mortal body, this one right here. On that day, He will give life to this mortal body through His Spirit who dwells in you. Here's our confession. The London Baptist Confession of 1689 on the resurrection in chapter 31. At the last day, such of the saints as are found alive shall not sleep but be changed and all the dead, all those Christians who have died, shall be raised up with the self-same bodies. Do you hear the point again? With the self-same bodies and none other. Now for some of you this is a disappointment. <laughs> Maybe most of you. I don't know if you're like me, but I know every little thing about my body that I don't like. Some of it's been repaired. Some of it's been fixed. Some of it, you know, I'm working on changing. But I know everything. I'm not going to talk about it. Be very uncomfortable. But I have a list, right? I'm ashamed to say that. I shouldn't have a list, but I do. I have a list of things about my body that I just don't really like. And this was one of the things that happened this week. I found out that I think those things are still going to be there. The self-same body and none other, although with different qualities. We could go on and on about that. Martin Luther hypothesized that we'll have the strength of a lion and the eyes of an eagle and the smell of a, a dog, I guess. I, don't, I can't remember what he said, but that's what comes to mind. I think dogs smell really, really great. 
greater qualities, better qualities, but it will be this body which shall be on that day united again to their souls forever. So you die, your soul goes to be with Jesus, and then down the road, whenever that is, and Jesus returns, the end of all things, your body gets reunited, wherever that body is, gets reunited with your soul. It's a glorified, transformed, changed body, and it then lives on this earth. But this earth also will be renewed and changed and transformed. No sin. It is the new heavens and the new earth where we will live with God forever. So what this means, obviously, is that these bodies of ours are permanent. What's the point he's making to the Corinthians and us? What you do with your body is important. Your body, that body you have today, it matters to God and it should matter to you. Think of it this way. The body that goes into the grave is the same body that will come out of the grave. The same body. Your body will not be destroyed. It will be changed. It will be transformed. God created your body. It is for Him. And He is going to resurrect that body. It's why the Bible speaks of the Christian's body that has died as sleeping. It is why the biblical pattern and the historically Christian pattern has been for Christians to bury their loved ones and lay them to rest, that practice is rooted in the belief of the resurrection. As a side note, this made me completely think differently about cremation. Really. When I learned this week these things that we're talking about, when I, when I learned that Christians historically have looked at laying a body to rest and putting a body in a grave, that that has been rooted in an understanding of how important that body is to God and a belief that God will raise that body from the grave. Now, that doesn't mean... Here's what happened for me. I felt guilty this week. I felt guilty this week. My mom and my dad have both died, and they were both cremated. So my mom and dad, they are in, not to be graphic, but they are in little gold. Their bodies are in these little brass boxes at a cemetery in in Napa. Now, I've got no doubt, right, I'm not worried about this. I'm not worried that when the resurrection happens that Jesus can't figure that out and put that body back together. I know he's got that. Not a problem, not an issue. But now in hindsight, if if God forbid my wife were to die or any of my kids were to die, I'd know what I'd do differently. Now that's me, that's personal, personal conviction. There's not a verse for that. But I want you again to see how theology affects how we think and what we do as Christians. And so to find out that Christians historically, that burying a body has had something to say biblically, that that body is precious to God, 
It's not just to be thrown away. It is precious to God, and that body is going to be resurrected. I mean, think about what the body means to God. We think about the soul, rightly. But do we think also about our body this way? God made you. He knit you together. You have the color hair you have because of God. You're the height you are because of God. You have the color eyes you have because of God. Your face is shaped the way it is because of God. He designed you. Knit you together. Made no mistakes. How important is this view of the human body today? The body is important. The body matters to God. That's his point he's making throughout. Number two. Your body is a member of Christ. Look at verses 15 through 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And then look down at verse 17, because he says it two ways. In verse 17, he says, our bodies are joined to the Lord, who is Christ. So our bodies are, let this sink in. Your body is a member of Christ. Not just your soul. Your physical body is united to Christ right now and will be united to Christ forever. Your body, the word is joined. It's glued is the word. Your body is joined, is glued to Jesus. Even bodies in graves are united to Christ. Think about loved ones who have trusted and loved Jesus and have gone before you and their souls are now with Jesus in heaven and their bodies wherever they are and their bodies are right now united to Christ. Which leads to this argument. Because that's true, verse 15. Shall I then, here's how he confronts sexual immorality. Shall I then take the members of Christ, that is our bodies. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's Paul's argument rooted in, that's Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The biblical teaching that through sexual intimacy, two become one. It is this union, this spiritual union that the Holy Spirit, Malachi says, causes between a man and a woman. Biblically, there is no such thing as casual sex. This is why sexual intimacy is restricted to and celebrated within marriage. Because sex profoundly unites people. That's not the world's view. But it is God's view who designed this. It profoundly unites people. Well, here's the bigger problem for the Christian then 
who does this. They are already profoundly united to Christ. You see the point he's making. Paul's argument is that when a Christian joins himself or herself to a prostitute, he joins Christ to a prostitute. Now that is horrifying, isn't it? That's his point. He's shocking the Corinthians with this truth. What a horrifying thought. To join through my behavior, somehow, some way, to join Christ to a prostitute. So understandably, right here in the text, Paul inserts a command. In verse 18, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Flee from sexual immorality. People today need to hear this. Our culture, you know, runs to sexual immorality. We excuse sexual immorality. We redefine sexual immorality. We give reasons and justifications even in the church. We may not deal with it as brazenly as the Corinthians do, maybe more secretively, but many in this culture, including in churches, give themselves license to sexual immorality. And we need to have this attitude that Paul gives. Flee. Don't mess with it. Don't even get close. Run is the word he's using. It reminds me of the famous story, right? In Genesis chapter 39. I mean, this literally is what Joseph did was when he was in Potiphar's house. Joseph was working for Potiphar. Potiphar's wife had a thing for Joseph. So Potiphar's wife was always trying to get, when her husband was away, was trying to get Joseph alone and was trying to get Joseph in bed with her. So in chapter 39, it says, But one day, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, now that's when he should have run because this is a setup, right? So he goes to do his job and, oh, look at this. No one is here except for Potiphar's wife. She caught him by his garment. So she gets very aggressive with him. It's no longer words. She grabs him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he, remember what he did, he left his garment in her, that is his clothes, in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Good job, Joseph. Good job. He's fleeing from sexual immorality. He's running from sexual immorality. He's not thinking about it. He's not considering it. He's not, you know, am I up to the task? Can I resist this temptation? You know, God won't give me more than I can handle, right? So, you know, the, the door is closed, but here's a window. None of those things are going through his head. Let go and let God. I mean, every one of those would have gone really bad for Joseph. So he runs. He, he flees. There's a famous story about Augustine. Uh, I think it's in his Confessions. Uh, before, it's about something that happened before he became a Christian. He didn't become a Christian until I think he was 31 years old. And before Augustine became a Christian, he lived a licentious life. He was very familiar with drunkenness, very familiar with prostitution. 
Well, one day after he had been converted, so he's a Christian now, uh, he was a, a professor of philosophy at the time, he had to go back to his old stomping grounds to take care of some business. And he had, he says, avoided going back where he used to socialize because his words were he was afraid of what might happen. But he had to go back. So as he was walking in this old part of town, one of those beautiful but wicked companions from his past saw him. He says she saw him and her face lit up and she outstretched her arms and she started running for him saying, Augustine, we have missed you so much. Where have you been? Well, he freaked out and he's got like this big professor's robe on. So he said it was like a funny sight. So he like gathers up his robe and he starts running as fast as he can. You know, like this 35-year-old man runs as fast as he can in the opposite direction. And he said that while he was, she was yelling at him saying, Augustine, why are you running? It's just me. And his response was, the reason I am running is that it is no longer me. I'm not who I used to be. He had been converted. He couldn't go back to that former lifestyle. So what did he do? He ran. It was wise. Did he look foolish doing it? I'm sure he did. He says he did. But he was wise. Proverbs 6, 27 through 28. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? Some of you men carry fire right next to your chest. And you think that you can't get burned, but you're getting burned. So is your wife. So are your children. Though not now, they will be. It's not to be messed with, sexual immorality. It's not to be dabbled in. It's not to be played with. Or, Solomon writes, can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? That's what that man is trying to do. So flee from sexual immorality, Paul is saying, because your body is joined to Christ. So your body is joined to Christ. Your body is permanent. It will be resurrected. Your body is holy. And now number three, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We talked about this a bit a few weeks ago, so we won't go into great detail now. But verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So back in chapter 3, verse 16, we learned something a little different, similar to this. And that is that the Holy Spirit dwells among Christians in a special way when they gather together. That's what that was talking about. So there is a collective dwelling of the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit dwells among us in a special way when we are collectively together. But this is something different. Each one of you as Christians, each one of you is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the wording here, it's clear. Not your soul not your spirit is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
In other words, your body is sacred. It's holy ground. This is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells within your body. So your body, to summarize Paul's argument, your body is not for sexual immorality. Your body is permanent. Your body will be resurrected. Your body is holy. Your body has been united to Christ. And your body is sacred space. Your body is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. So Paul closes now with these words found in verses 19 through 20. He's summarizing much of what he's just said. But here's how he concludes. You are not your own. That's what he has said, isn't it? Your body is not your own. He said in verse 13, your body is not for you. Your body is for the Lord. And so what you do with your body is very important. Your body is for the Lord because your body belongs to the Lord. And it belongs to the Lord because, verse 20, for you were bought with a price. And what was the price? The price that God paid for you here, the point, the price that God paid for your body was the blood of His only Son, Jesus Christ. Your body has been purchased, not in the sense that it's my body now. I'll do whatever I want with it. In the sense that your body is precious to me. God is saying, your body is that precious. Your body is that important. You are that precious. You are that important. You are that loved that God was willing to pay the price of the death of his only son, Jesus Christ, who came, Jesus did, and died in your place so that you may have eternal life, so that your body could be united to Christ, so that when you die, your soul would live on eternally, go to be with Jesus, and so that that body of yours, now united to Christ, dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, that if you die before Jesus comes back, it'll be put into a grave for a while. And however long that is and what happens to your body and as it breaks down and, and decomposes over the months or over the years, God one day will take every molecule of that body and he will magically put it back together and unite it to your soul. And it will be a renewed, transformed, changed, glorified body with new qualities. And you will dwell with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth forever. Now the price of that again was Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, in other words, 
you do not follow Jesus. You do not love Jesus. You do not live for Him. You have not come to understand who He is and what He's done and put all your faith and all your trust and all your reliance on Him. This is what it means to be a Christian and nothing short of that. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to hear this good news. The good news that you are a sinner. That you have been separated from God because of your sin. You have from the as long as you can remember, you have gone your own way. You have done things your own way. You have trusted in yourself. You have not trusted in God. You have gone your own way. You have not gone God's way. You're the captain of your soul. No one else is. And this is how you viewed life. At best, you've been indifferent to God. And at worst, you've just flat out disregarded and disobeyed Him. And you cannot live like that. Not in the universe that God has created it and the way God has created you and the purposes for which God has created you. You cannot live that way and just live eternally in happiness with God forever. You will be punished. There is nothing more horrible that we do than rebel against God. You will be punished. And the righteous, just punishment will be eternal alienation from God in hell. You will be without Him and without His love and without His affection and without His provision and without His protection forever. Now, that should be the end of the story. It really should be. That's justice. May not feel like it, but that's justice. That's wrong being punished. That's evil being punished. That could be the end of the story. But God has decided in His infinite wisdom and according to His infinite mercy that He would make a way for people, sinners, to be saved. And that way is Jesus. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. There is no way to the Father except through Me. As we come to know Jesus, and we read about Jesus, and we listen to the words of Jesus, and we read His Word, and we read the words that He read, and we believe and understand and come to know who He is and what He's done. And that is that He came and lived a perfect life as God's Son yet became a human, lived a perfect life that you and I could not live, didn't deserve to be punished like you and I deserve, and yet He was punished on the cross. He was punished on the cross on behalf of those whom He loved. So that, at some point in my life and many of you, and maybe in your life if you're not a Christian, you would sit in a service like this or you would read the Bible or another Christian would share this good news and you would hear what Jesus did on the cross and you would find in your heart belief and you would find love and you would find worship and you would find affection and you would turn to Jesus and place your faith in Him, your trust in Him, order your life around Him, become the center of everything and you would have the promise of salvation. So if you're here today and you are not a Christian, 
Believe this good news. If your heart is stirred, if your heart is warmed by these words, embrace Jesus now as your Savior. Turn to Him. Commit to Him. Devote yourself to Him. Read His Word. Pray. Become a member of a local church. Worship Him. Get to know other Christians. Grow in Christ. For those of you who are here and are Christians this morning, your body, your frail body, your unique body, your body with all its imperfections, it is for God. Your body is not for the approval of others. Your body is for God. It is not your body to do with as you like. It is certainly not for sexual immorality. Your body is for the glory of God. Which is why Paul concludes with this phrase, so. And here is his concluding exhortation. Glorify God 